the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Julia Jacobson, CEO of Astor Farms. Um, as CEO of Astor Farms, Julia brings an expertise in entrepreneurship, supply chain management, and business development to the Astor team. Her personal interest in cannabis is rooted in her battle with chronic migraines, incorporating the plant with her prescribed routine to mitigate symptoms, balance equilibrium, and chart a healthy course. Julia develops Astor's high-level vision, ensuring the team is two steps ahead as the company scales. And prior to Astor Farms, Julia was co-founder and CEO of, I'm going to, Julia, you're going to have to, so, in the market? In market. In market, thank you. In market. (laughs) (laughs) An affiliate marketing platform for content providers. She led the company through Techstars and its acquisition by XO Group in 2016, where she went on to become the director of National Revenue Products. Julia's career began as a buyer for Bloomingdale's, giving her a solid foundation in retail and supply chain economics. And today, Julia continues to be a mentor mentor to tech stars and young entrepreneurs in many fields. Um, Astor Farms is a sustainably grown cannabis company from Northern California with a deep-rooted belief that responsible farming, live soil, and organic inputs produce the highest quality flowers. Ken, I'm sorry, here. Ah, <laughs> oh, that coffee. I need a little more coffee. Astor Farms lets <laughs> nature do the work because clean cannabis equals a clean high. Clean cannabis for a clean high, bigger than buds. I love that. So I just have to say, Julia, it's just so nice to have you on the show. Welcome. I I love the vision your company has. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to chat today. Um, what I wanted to start out with, um, we'll definitely talk about sustainable cannabis because that's incredibly important. But first, I wanted to talk about your path to cannabis. Um, I mentioned a little bit in your intro, but really what led you into it, um, what you're passionate about now, and, and, and what paths you see down the line. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my interest in cannabis um, really shifted in the last few years. I had been a recreational user of cannabis for a while, um, and I started to develop chronic migraines. Um, My mom has them, they're hereditary, hereditary, and they really started to get out of control. I was on a cocktail of medications, you know, reaching for anything, like lidocaine shots in my forehead, trying anything. Um, and nothing was working, it was debilitating, and I was in and out of the hospital. And finally, an ER doctor said to me, and this was back in New York, you know, I can't prescribe you cannabis, but I would suggest you try it to treat your migraines. And that was kind of the moment where cannabis completely changed for me, from something that just used to be fun and part of my recreational life, um, to actually something that was healing me and letting me um, live the, the life that I want to live and not be sick anymore. Um, and so it really kind of changed the way I thought and felt about the plant. Um, and ever since we've gotten involved in the industry and launched our brand and really started to dig in um, every day more and more, I come to respect that part of um, cannabis and that part of this industry um, because it really truly is a medicine, whether you're actually um, prescribed cannabis in a medicinal way or for people who are using it in medicinal ways that are not as um, you know obvious as that, whether it's just to help your mind shut down so you can go to sleep, um, to calm some anxiety, et cetera. 
Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, too, is when we're looking at the advent of legalization in different states, the one thing that I've noticed is that people really expected that adult use would mean recreational use would go way up. But what I noticed was that it created greater access for people to be able to use cannabis to help alleviate symptoms. Yeah, you know, that's true. It's what, what is interesting, at least in California, is that while that is absolutely true, there are people who, you know, just like you're saying, who, you know, don't necessarily get a prescription for sleeping pills, but definitely have used cannabis to assist in their um, getting a better sleep, who now have access to it. At the same time, at least in California, um, when recreational came on the market, a lot of the dispensaries really lost the knowledge and the direction to be talking to um, consumers on a medicinal, um, more kind of medical basis. So as a real medical patient in California, um, I have actually found it challenging to get the right information and have the right conversations with bud tenders um, since it has gone recreational. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dilemma because especially when we're looking at actually remaining in compliance, there's a lot of language issues that have now come up through policy. And I think that another thing that's really important is looking at the cultures of the different stores and how they're teaching, you know, their bud tenders or cannabis consultants or, you know, whatever their title is at the dispensaries. Um, because whether we're calling it recreational or medicinal, it's a substance that creates a reaction in the body. And so it's really important for people to not only feel confident in being educated by people behind the bar, but also in their choices in creating a safe container for experimentation. Um, I was wondering, when you were working with your migraines, do you, what cannabinoids do you find are helpful and what ways do you like to consume to give you relief? That is a great question. Um, you know, we're still learning more and more every day. Um, but one cannabinoid that I accidentally came across that helped me um, is CBG. And so CBG actually can help dilate the, the blood vessels, particularly around your ocular cavity, so around your eyes. Um, with some migraines, you actually want to constrict the vessels. With other migraines, you want to relieve them. Um, so with certain migraines that I get, I found that strains that are high in CBG have been really helpful to kind of kick it in the butt. Um, I actually have uh, also used CBG tablets from Level. Um, it's a brand that makes uh, minor cannabinoids in tablet form. Um, and so that's also a great way to not necessarily get the THC high, but just get that CBG that I need to, to shut it down. Yeah, it's. I think that's one of the things that's really important to note is that you can get relief and still have it be functional. Because I think a lot of people... Absolutely. Yeah, if a lot of people want to use cannabis, but they're afraid that it's going to take away from their day. But there's, there's so many ways to be able to use it. I remember back in the day when we used to still weigh out flowers, a lot of times people who had migraines um, would gravitate towards White Widow because it had some really good effects as far as... Um, being a bronchio and unvasodilator, and that's I think that it's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I think that I'm hoping that there's more research that goes into it, especially because, as you know, being growers, it's like the different phenotypes will have different expressions, and so how do we how do we track that? Exactly, I know we've I have found that white buffalo, 
um, tent, which is a pretty hard strain to find in California these days, because um, the nursery that used to breed it is no longer breeding it, so it's up to, to the um, individual farms to actually carry on the genetics. Um, so we actually, we know one farm that's continuing it, but white buffalo has been a really high CBG producer. Um, but it's tricky, it's difficult because, you know, there isn't that much data and that much information and particularly spread enough through the entire supply chain. So when we're buying our genetics, you know, the, the, the nurseries we're buying them from, they're not necessarily focusing on minor cannabinoids. They're telling you the THC. They're telling you what, you know, what level of hybrid is it? Does it swing more sativa, more indica? They're telling you the crosses. They're telling you, you know, the light site, the flowering cycle, how long it'll take to grow. Um, but they're not telling you, oh, this strain has typically tested high in CBG because they're not looking for that. Um, so, you know, I think right now it's up to the brands. Um, you know, once we get our testing back, when we're looking for different um, cannabinoids and products to put in our SKUs, I think right now it's up to us. But I think hopefully in the future um, it will that will actually be something that we can drill down to at the nursery, at the seed sale level. It's it's interesting that you mentioned that too because it's like when we're looking at how cannabis works, we really should be doing a, a broad spectrum approach where we we look to see everything that's in there with the terpene count, all the cannabinoids, and then the one thing I wanted to talk to you about was the article that came out the other week about um, THC levels and how you know we have all these high octane THC flowers now. And one of the biggest misconceptions is that that's the indicator of strength or the ultimate feel because I've had really high THC flowers that have been relatively functional and I've had things that are around 13% with a really interesting terpene profile that have blown me away. And people, consumers don't understand that that is not the end-all be-all. And, and sometimes it actually they aren't even nearly as great as some of the lower THC percentages, but it seems like a lot of growers are under pressure to grow a lot of high octane THC flowers. Yeah. You know, when we first came on the market, um, we launched our brand um, in the regulated legal market in 2018. And at that time it was all potency hunting. Um, when you had a meeting with a bud buyer, all they wanted to talk about was your potency and anything under 20%, they were just not even interested in. Um, and I definitely still think that there's a little bit of that going on. It's one of the few things that bud tenders gravitate towards to talk about. Um, but I also think it's consumer driven because consumers have not been educated. They haven't been given enough information to feel confident walking into the dispensary and saying, you know, I don't care about the THC. I want to understand you know, what is the most complex, um, you know, profile of a cannabinoid and terpene structure that you have here? Like, what is going to be the best high or what is going to be the most balanced high? Um, and I think you get that from that full structure, which is really, you know, one of the unique things that, that we find is beneficial about growing outdoors. Um, you know, typically, if you look on the market, if you go to a dispensary and you look on the menu, um, and this is definitely not across the board, but this is typically indoor strains will test higher. They'll get close, you know, in the 20s, closer to 30% even, um, and more outdoor grown strains are testing a little bit lower. And um, so, you know, when you actually consume those two different flowers, you know, one next to the other, um, what I have experienced typically is that a lot of indoor cannabis has a very, um, you know, very kind of 
surface high. Um, it hits you really quickly, but then there's nothing beneath it. You don't stay high or stoned. You don't feel the effects that long. Um, it's very kind of surface level. And then when you consume really well, well-grown, crafted outdoor cannabis, the complexity of all of the various cannabinoids and terpenes in there really give you a much more enhanced um, experience. So, you know, our Maui OG tests at about 14% consistently year after year, and yet it is the OG bud buyers in San Francisco area, absolute favorite strain. Um, there are two dispensaries, which I will not name, who only buy our Maui OG, and when we are out of it, they do not have us on the shelf. Like, it is their cult favorite. Um, and but, but it takes a particular dispensary to have that kind of level of understanding and be comfortable to be able to say and explain to consumers, look, this is why. Um, you know, it takes more effort and takes more knowledge, but, you know, we need to get there. Um, so, you know, I, I think part of it is the full-spectrum sunlight that develops a better cannabinoid profile. Um, and then I think it's the soil. Um, you know, when you're growing in live soil um, and you're using organic nutrients and fish teas and whatnot, it really is developing those terpene profiles. Um, we see about 2% on average in our product, and that's significantly beyond what you typically see in indoor. I can totally see where that be. I mean, when you think about it, there's no, there's nothing like the sun. Even when they talk about indoor growing, that they think it has the full spectrum of the sun. We we don't know that, and and also, I mean, there's there's terroir to take into consideration. Um, a few episodes ago, I think it's episode episode four, I had Phil Couture on, um, who is one. He's like one of the pioneers of organic grape growing, and he's grown cannabis for years and was talking about you know grapes, flowers, it's like, you know, being outdoors, having like a little bit of the stress and struggle actually makes for a richer plant. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts around terroir? You know, it's interesting. We'll see. There's also the Appalachian conversation going on as well. Um, I would say that in terms of um, our climate and the soil that we grow in, there's a huge difference when you look at Lake County cannabis versus Mendocino cannabis versus Humboldt cannabis. Um, there's something to be said there. There is something in the soil. There's something that is definitely affecting the structure of the bud, um, the flavor profiles, the scent profiles. Um, you know, we are actually working on an experiment right now. Uh, we are planting some non-cannabis terpene plants with some of our cannabis plants and Ooh. seeing what kind of effect that takes. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're going to learn more again as testing continues. You know, we've only, we're only one year into the legal cannabis market or one and a half years into the legal cannabis market in California. And so there isn't that much data from all the test results yet. You know, it was a rocky start with testing. Um, testing was all across the board. Now it's stabilized a little bit. And I think as we continue to um, see that roll out and start to get more and more of that information, we will be able to identify, you know, is there something special that you're getting in your product from the soil, from this climate, from this region, from this watershed? Um, you know, someone recently said to me, it's, it's interesting, our outdoor bud structure is very dense. 
Um, and you usually only see that in indoor, typically outdoors, a little bit larfier and a little bit fluffier. Mm-hmm. And somebody said to me, he's um, a salesperson in the cannabis ancillary uh, market, and said that I always see dense buds in Lake County. They always have dense buds in Lake County. That how your product is. And it was the first time somebody kind of connected the dots because we live in a very kind of isolated world in some ways in this cannabis. You know, as much as we're talking to other cultivators, we're not comparing that many notes. Um, but I think I think there's something to be said for um, the sun and the soil and all of that truly contributing to the taste and the flavor and the complexity. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I remember um, when I first started working with cannabis and we would we it was funny because we'd almost poo poo outdoor. Um, we'd always say that it was weaker and people were more into the aesthetics of indoor. And then you have a really well done outdoor flower and it, it blows you away. There's, there's right. nothing quite exactly. like it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, how long has Astor Farms been going and, and how did that how did that come to be? Yeah, so um, my husband is my co-founder, and his grandparents actually moved to Mendocino 50 years ago, and his family has been growing sustainable cannabis off the grid for about 50 years now. Um, in fact, his grandfather was the first person to, who went to prison for cannabis cultivation in Mendocino. Um, and legend has it, his family and the local neighboring farms brought indica um, to California. But that one, we are still, we're still vetting that legend. Um, <laughs> That's an awesome so one to have, in though. In the family. Yeah, it is. It is. We're, we're vetting it, though. We're trying to connect with the other people on Signal Ridge and see what the deal really is. Um, but so cannabis was in Sam's family and I had actually been in the, um, I was a, a buyer for Bloomingdale's and then, um, you know, ran a tech company. And at that point I was really burnt out. I didn't want to be in the technology space anymore. Um, I had this just desire to literally stick my hands in the soil. Um, and at the same time, cannabis had really taken that turn for me and turned into a medicinal and wellness product and something that was a, becoming a much more important part of my life. Um, so the combination of all those things kind of came together. And so we started spending more time out in Northern California learning about the family farm and um, organic practices and all of that. And what we realized on the market was that there was a whole, um, you know, there wasn't really a brand that was healthy, but not necessarily hippie. And that's kind of who we are as people. We're conscious consumers. Um, you know, we care about what we put in our bodies. We care about where we spend our money. Um, but at the same time, we're not necessarily super hippie. And so we wanted to see a brand that spoke to us and had all of those same ethos um, and had a very contemporary brand to it. So we decided, you know, all, all, all arrows are pointing in this direction. Let's just do this. Um, so we, we partnered up with Sam's closest family friend um, since he was a child who had been growing organic cannabis in Lake County for about 15 years. Um, and so he is our director of cultivation. He is the actual grower. Um, and so he has been growing on his own property for about 10 years. Um, and that is the same exact soil that we grow in today. Um, so that is kind of how Astro came together. Like I said, we launched um, in stores um, in about 2000, the summer of 2018, right when the legal market turned on here in California. Okay. Well, that. <laughs> 
that's a really interesting time to jump into all of this. That's for sure. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it was, you know, it was a good time to jump in because we went about this intending from day one to be fully buttoned up, um, you know, following all regulations. And so when the testing, when all the regulations switched on, there were actually not that many brands who had all compliant packaging, passed all the testing. Um, So it was actually a great time. There's a little hole in the market to kind of squeeze in. So um, it was it was good timing. Well, and especially too, I think, for a sustainable cannabis product, because we were seeing a lot of people getting into the, and you know, I, I usually talk about more the industry, the movement, but really the cannabis game, um, you know, and we were missing out on like a lot of the quality products that we used to have back in the 215 days when a grower was, when whoever brought the flowers in was actually the person who grew it. Um, And that kind of like circles back to sustainability. So I know some of our listeners will understand exactly what that means. But for people who are trying to educate themselves on what sustainable cannabis is and why that's a good thing, would you want to elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, So sustainability means a lot of things and can be defined many ways. Um, For us, it's really about uh, not taking from the earth, you know, what we're putting back into it and really being environmentally conscious and and not just in terms of how we're treating the actual um, land and environment where our farm is, but also in terms of our carbon emissions and really living and operating in the uh, lightest carbon footprint possible. Um, and leaving our land better than it was today for the future generation. So for us, that means sourcing as much as we can. Anything that we can't actually produce on the farm, we we try to source within a 50-mile radius of the farm so that we're buying local um, and the actual transportation involved is not commit, you know, is not causing a huge carbon footprint. Um, in addition to that, sustainability when it comes to actual agriculture, um, you're typically talking about regenerative farming. And what regenerative farming means is really focusing on live soil and not depleting the soil of all of its nutrients. Um, so with regenerative farming, you're, you know, if you, if you ever drive by big ag fields and they're just big brown dirt fields, um, that is the opposite of regenerative sustainable farming. Um, what's happening there is that you have a dead layer of topsoil. Um, and what we do at our farm and what people do with regenerative farming is you actually grow crops in the off season. So you always have a green layer of, of um, vegetation on top of that soil. And what that's doing is it's trapping, it's pulling nitrogen um, and other nutrients into the soil. The roots of those cover crop are digging deep down and aerating the soil and creating, um, you know, the right you know, fluffiness that we need to plant our plants in. Um, it's also holding on those roots and, and the vegetation is actually holding on to that top layer of soil so that it can't um, flow away in a storm or in a rain into the waterbeds. Um, and so there are many, many reasons why it's super important to really be nurturing and, and paying attention to your soil to be growing cover crop and not depleting it of the nutrients. Um, because cannabis, all, all plants, if you grow a mono plant, you know, uh, a single crop plant on your, on your farm, you're depleting certain nutrients. Um, so it's super important to be focusing on what you're putting right back into your land and that, the, and that what you're putting back in is all natural, all organic and, um, you know, uh, 
best would be native um, to your region. So those are some of the ways that we really focus on sustainability. Um, One of the trickiest parts of being a sustainable brand in cannabis is the packaging. Um, And that's because in California, cannabis packaging is required to be uh, child-resistant certified. And that certification process is very difficult. Um, So there aren't that many biodegradable or recyclable materials that have been certified into those forms as child-resistant. So that's definitely the area that there's the most work to be done, both in this industry and for us as a brand. Yeah, I think that's a huge challenge. And also as Californians, because we've always led the charge around, you know, recycling, composting, you know, that's spread across the nation. And to see all the waste that we have right now is is really sad. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, our, our apes are sold in glass jars um, with a plastic top. Both pieces can technically be recycled. However, recycling plants are allowed to reject and throw into the landfill anything that has touched cannabis um, because it is deemed an illegal substance. So if you're listening to this and you're going to recycle your jar from some cannabis, definitely rinse it off um, so that there isn't any residue in there in the hopes that it makes it through the recycling process. That is a great tip. I know we, um, at, at the dispensary where I'm public education officer at the apothecarium, we have a lot of people who come up to us with their jars later on saying, what do I do with these? And we always tell them to put them in the recycling. Although I have noticed a few people who have said that they've used them for regifting or they use them for their um, their spice cabinet. <laughs> so there's some creative nice. uses. That's great. <laughs> totally. Yeah, we've also seen. I know uh, Flocana does a lot of activations where they plant succulents and things into old jars. So there are lots of crafty ways to use old jars. That's very cool. Yeah, the other day- not necessarily mylar. Not mylar bags, though. Not many uses for those. No, that's true. I have noticed, though, that some companies are starting to replace the, those mylar zips with biodegradable plastic, which is really nice to see. I know it's not as cost-effective, but in the long run, I think it, it really behooves us to do things like that. I agree. The one thing that um, is tricky, though, is from what we found, all of the biodegradable bags on the market... Um, it actually turns into a form of acid when it biodegrades. Oh. So, yeah, which exactly. So it's, it's a plus on one side and a big negative on the other. What have you heard about the possibility of hemp-based products for containers? Um, I haven't heard much about that. You know, I know that there are a lot of companies that create biodegradable um, products, other products out there that are realizing that the cannabis industry needs this. Um, We're talking to one group in Santa Rosa right now who's working to get child-resistant certification. Um, But so far, all the materials that we've come across have not included hemp. But honestly, it's, you know, to be able to go full circle, hemp is an incredibly, um, incredible crop in terms of carbon sequestration. Um, so is cannabis, but hemp is grown in a larger um, scale. And so it, it does that much more carbon sequestration. Um, so to really kind of close that loop on the sustainability, it would be amazing if somebody created um, a hemp material in, in CR. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I think that there's just so much opportunity 
Um, it, it, we, you know, we're going through our growing pains, especially here in California. But I think that there's an enormous opportunity with the industry to be able to create a whole new blueprint as to how we do business around sustainability, around, you know, um, abundance, around social justice. There are just so many things that come into play that we have a unique opportunity to, to start early on instead of having to do late stage storming, norming and reforming. Exactly. And I think this industry also has the opportunity to kind of lead the lead change, you know, really lead and be at the forefront of change, both in terms of the sustainability movement, when you talk about big ag and how agriculture has to make a shift at some point, um, and in terms of social justice. You know, this industry um, really kind of represents and epitomizes a lot of the things that have really gone wrong in this country. Um, and we are having a fresh start, which doesn't exist in any other industry. Um, not a fresh start, but we have an opportunity now to kind of kick it off in a whole new way. And so I think it's super, I think it is the responsibility of um, legal operators in this industry to be socially and environmentally conscious. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And empowering, empowering for consumers, uh, because we do so many yes. that, that it, it, I really believe that if we have more in-depth education programs, not just at the dispensary level, um, that will, will, the more informed the consumers are, the, the safer they are. And, and that's, you know, cause Absolutely. everybody's so different, you know, um, I, and I was going to actually, I wanted to circle back too with, um, your experience at Bloomingdale's because with this new market and with normalization and, you know, we can, we can, we can have retail and we can have heart too. It is, it's entirely possible. And I'm just wondering like with, with that background experience, like when I first started working in a dispensary, most of the people there, some of them had retail experience, but everybody was just a total geek about cannabis in general. And it was a, it was a really quirky bunch because right. this was a while ago. <laughs> but it's like now we have more people who are excited about getting engaged with the industry. And I know, you know, more people that have been involved in like hospitality and retail are getting involved, which I think is a really good thing, especially with communication. But for you with your background in retail, how do you, how do you think that informed your moves and how do you think that it enriched your experience working with cannabis? That's a great question. You know, I think um, some of the areas that I've really taken from my experience as a buyer and brought to this, um, really revolve around pricing. <clears throat> um, you know, in a new industry, we all kind of created our price pricing um, in July of 2018 when everybody came legal onto this market and there were actually brands for the first time, you know, in the way that there are now. And, you know, one of the, the easy things to do is be really volatile with your pricing and change it, change it um, according to the, the whims and the ups and downs of the supply chain and of the market dynamics. And one of the things that I learned um, being in the, the retail apparel industry as a buyer um, is that price fluctuation does not help anyone. 
Um, it is better if you stick to your guns on the price that your your product is worth and valued. Um, and that means in bad times, it might be a little bit tougher to sell. In good times, you might have the oyster is your, is your world or the world is your oyster. Um, and, you know, I think that's been important for us. And I think it has shown at least to many of our retailers that um, we understand that, that that stability is important and, and to be able to know what you're getting out of a brand um, when we show up with our, our menu every week um, is important. So I think that's one area. Um, I also was a buyer during the recession. Um, and so I think there are going to be a lot of parallels as we see, you know, how the economy unfolds um, over the next six months to a year. Um, but, you know, market dynamics shift dramatically when, um, you know, economic, there's an economic downturn. And so I think it's going to be interesting, interest, interesting to bring some of my insight um, from that time to this. Um, but even beyond that, you know, it's it's funny because there is a lot of data to some extent. But then when I think back to my days as a buyer at Bloomingdale's, I just spent all my time on Excel. And we're just scratching the surface with even, you know, understanding, you know, projecting and and, and understanding like how rolling out new SKUs and all of that in terms of, you know, an actual retail uh, model. It's kind of just like throwing darts right now. Um, so I think, you know, it's going to rep, it's going to, it's going to mirror those more traditional, um, retail worlds more and more. I mean, already you're starting to see slotting programs like marketing where a brand pays to be on a top shelf in a store. Um, you know, you're starting to see shop in shops, which is where a brand kind of takes over a part of a store and they actually build out the physical infrastructure to be branded as them. So you're starting to see some of those games that the, the traditional retail industry already plays. So um, I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting and it's going to be fun for somebody like me to kind of watch as it begins to get uh, more and more aligned with traditional retail. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's fascinating to see. And I'm hoping with that normalization that we'll start getting some more breaks as well, because especially after legalization, a lot of people were really upset about how expensive everything became, not realizing that we're dealing with sales tax, excise tax, and in certain municipalities, an ad additional cannabis tax on top of it. And I think that's where normalization becomes a call to action for consumers, because when people get really upset about that, I always mention to them, well, what you have to understand is that these are people in our government that are making these decisions around where these taxes are going to go and which taxes are going to exist. And as a consumer and as a voter, what we need to do is to start seeing these these politicians and officials, having them see us as not only do we are we active in society, but we're productive and we use cannabis and we vote. Because I think that that'll, you know, we really need some, we need to make some changes so that it's more accessible. And also just where we're divvying out these taxes to, because a lot of it didn't seem to really make a whole lot of sense. I, for me personally, the passing of 64 was, I, I felt like it was a step that we had to make um, to evolve the industry. But I also knew that it wasn't going to be pretty because we were having to work with people that may not necessarily have been so keen on it happening. Absolutely. You know, I, I yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. 
Um, I think, you know, in California, just in the last six months, they increased, they actually increased the cultivation tax and the excise taxes. Um, and we don't necessarily get to have a say in where that money is going. Um, you know, we're in Lake County where our farm is. We're part of Lake County's Lake County Growers Association, which has formed um, a group that attends all the Board of Supervisors meetings and gives public comment and whatnot. But even that's not enough. And I think I agree with you. You know, there are some there are some cannabis companies out there and we'll definitely be doing this as well as it gets closer to election time um, that are actually doing a lot of great research for people and putting out lists of um, people at the local level that you can vote for who are going to actually um, be aligned with the way that we see the cannabis industry and the changes that we know need to be made. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of education that needs to be done on that side. Um, I'm actually on the oversight committee for San Francisco. And when the controller's office put out a report, they were talking about how the price per gram had gone up in dispensaries. And they had mentioned that they thought it was due to competition. And that's when I stopped them. And I said, um, nobody's ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever said, "Oh, I'm competing with you. Let's raise the price." And I, you know, it's like let's let's break this down. Let's let's look at what the real price is, and then let's look at how many times excise tax hits it, and then we have sales tax, and we have everything else. Really, you know, th- this is this is all about you know taxation. This has nothing. Actually, this is hurting businesses, and it was it was amazing. It's just like when you tell people. And you know this. This is this is no news to you that the green rush is over. People don't understand that it's a business now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's a business with very, very, very tough margins right now. You know, even even for equity dispensaries where they don't have to pay the excise, where they have the excise tax weighed, that doesn't trickle all the way down the supply chain. Um, as a cultivator, you're taxed for your canopy locally, and then you're taxed again on the state level for your cultivation tax. Um, so even even if if you are getting a break as an equity dispensary on the excise tax, you're still getting squeezed because everything you're buying is being bubbled up from all these additional taxes. So the actual product you're purchasing um, has has already been marked up to up, you know to include all of these ridiculous. I mean, they're not ridiculous taxes, but these excessive taxes. Um, you know, we really we hope that the tax dollars that we're paying are really going to, um, you know, make change in our communities. Um, but until we actually see that, it's pretty tough to swallow. It is. Well, and then taking into consideration the fact that prior to COVID, we were looking at major extinction events in the industry. And now it's even harder. So we have we have COVID that's affecting our industry and our ability to be sustainable. Luckily, we've been considered necessary in these times but i think that should also garner further consideration with how we're taxed and then we have what's going to be happening possibly in august if no aid is approved where we're going to have a lot of people who are going to be scrambling for cash and still needing help and especially with covid and everything that's been going on especially with the unrest because of how people have been treated unfairly in Black Lives Matter, we're, we have a lot of PTSD, we have a lot of sleeplessness, we have a lot of stress. So more than ever, people are using cannabis for homeostasis. And how, how are they going to be able to afford it with everything that's going on? And then how do we sustain as a community and an industry? 
It's a, it's a really, it's, exactly. it's, it's quite a ball of wax. Yeah, absolutely. And then on top of everything, um, you know, in California, at least, we recently had a string of um, organized crime burglaries that went through um, that hit a bunch of the cannabis industry. And that includes um, some equity dispensaries. And, you know, when you're hit in a burglary, you lose your cash because, again, this is a federally illegal substance, so we cannot bank properly. Um, you lose your cash. You lose all of your product. You have, you know, damage done to your property. How do you keep going after that? Um, you know, we, we, there, it, it's a tough time and we're having very, you know, hard and sensitive conversations with some of our retailers who are going through a tough time because of the limit to the number of people who can even walk their door um, or, you know, uh, unfortunate events that have happened to their location. So um, I think, you know, like you said, this was a year of extinction events, and I think it's only going to be worse. Um, so it's it's going to be a tough year to weather through, and hopefully, hopefully it's only this year. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. I really do. And I, and I really, I feel for everybody who's going through it. And in particular, I really feel for the equity operators, especially the ones who, you know, were broken into and it's really hard to recoup the costs. But I also really applaud a lot of the community how they've come together to help out, too, because there are some really great people that we're honored to work with that that really dig in and do the work. I would completely agree with you. And I think, you know, with everything going on right now, I think a lot more um, attention is going to be um, highlighting some of those organizations who are doing the good work that, and, and getting more people behind them to support them. So that's my hope, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as like, as we kind of talk in the future, post-COVID and hopefully in a much more equitable and loving world, um <laughs> What do you see for the what do you see in the future of what what you want to see in cannabis or and what you want to work in with cannabis projects that maybe Astro Farms is is looking at? Yeah, you know, I think right now it's it's going to be an interesting year also in terms of brand building. Um, up until this year, like, yes, there have been some brands on the market that are recognizable, um, but it's really been the last couple of years that brands are starting to form and create and, be, and um, you know, garner loyalty. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting next two years um, as this industry matures and we start to see, um, you know, who is who and what do you stand for? You know, are you a brand that's just white labeling and you don't care who you're sourcing from and you don't have much of a story? Like, is there substance? I think we're really going to start to see who's who, who has substance um, and also start to see, you know, who cares about what. Um, Canaclusive has put together an incredible accountability list to really look into um, whether or not cannabis companies are putting their money where their mouth is. Um, it's easy to post a black square and say that you're in solidarity, but what do you do next? Um, and so I think there's going to be, it's going to be an interesting year um, where, you know, cannabis brands at least, and probably dispensaries as well, are going to be, you know, building their brand in a, in a totally new way um, and, and really putting out there who they, who they stand for and who they stand as. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, and I also think it's going to be an interesting year or two in terms of regulations. Um, you know, being deemed essential during COVID is definitely a new precedent has been set for cannabis. And I think it's definitely going to move the national conversation along substantially. 
Um, additionally, the Safe Banking Act has been slipped into the HEROES Act um, for the next COVID bill. So um, it didn't work out the last time, but hopefully we'll be able to get some, some pieces of the Safe Banking Act um, passed in the next couple months. Um, which would be just a huge win for the cannabis industry. So, um, you know, we're looking towards um, some new legalization happening on the federal level. We're looking towards brands really becoming and blossoming and um, turning into who they really are. And I think, you know, what we hope to see, at least in California, I don't know the other markets as well, um, is for it to be a more equitable space. Um, you know, we know that in, in Los Angeles area, uh, they previously, a lot of equity applicants were kind of told where their dispensary was going to be. And now they're being given the option to choose their location. And that's a huge, it sounds so simple, but that's a huge deal. Oh, totally. Um, you know, where your dispensary is, is a make it or break it. And that's like, that's just one of another one of those stupid, unfair things that was thrown into the mix to make it even not intentionally to make it difficult for equity applicants, but that does make it difficult. So I hope that the industry, and I think at least in California, um, the, the regulatory agencies have been listening, and I think that they are trying to make changes. And so I hope we see a more equitable industry um, in the next two years or so as, as the legislators are really um, reflecting on what this last year and a half, two years has been. Mm -hmm. And I I think as we've seen uh, with the equity programs and equity applicants, I think we're starting to see some of the pitfalls, some of the loopholes that people have used to actually take advantage of equity applicants. And and we're going to really change that too, because that's that's some really, I'm just going to be honest, it's some really messed up stuff. Because that's, you know, we're taking advantage of a program that was here to help people because of the great disadvantages of opportunity in our industry. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to go back into the flowers with you. But what do you (laughs) think? Because I love nerding out on that. Do you... So Aster Farms, do you how do you do your your own genetics often, and and how do you feel about uh, legacy cultivars? You know, because we were talking about you know, were we talking about white rhino or were we talking about white buffalo? White buffalo, right? White buffalo. That's right. Yep. I also like white rhino. That's a really good one too. Yeah. So we um, so we have some proprietary genetics that we continue to breed. Um, at the same time, we're still open and exploring. So um, we work with a handful of nurseries. We try, we specifically try to buy from nurseries that are more local and smaller um, because we don't want to have the same cultivars as everybody else on the market. We do want to have that uniqueness. Um, and so when we do find a new strain that does check well with who our brand is and with our consumer, um, we do consider breeding it and keeping it. We are not crossing any strains at the moment ourselves. Um, you know, all the breeding we're doing is really just perpetuating that um, those genetics. Um, but it's something that we may get into in the future. Um, but right now, you know, we do grow from seed for the most part. We buy some clones, but we grow from seed for the most part, um, which definitely gives a more vigorous plant, but also lends itself to a lot more uh, variation amongst the plants in each strain. Um, so we'll see if we continue to go that route as the industry matures. But um, 
that's really how we focus on our strains. You know, we, we're trying to find strains that are that are a little bit more unique, that are a little bit more land race, but at the same time, it's it's tricky. Um, and it's especially tricky now that, um, you know, the, the market is very locked in. Some nurseries haven't made it through the legal market. And so the pool of genetics that you have access to is pretty limited. Mm, yeah, yeah, that is true. I, that's another thing that I hope is that it, it becomes just in general, easier for people to be able to cultivate in this market because we've lost a lot of great genetics as a result of that. Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> the nerdy side of me is curious. When you're, when you're planting, um, when, you're, when your fields of green are fallow, what are you planting to regenerate the soil? Yeah, so um, we actually plant amongst our plants both during the season and in the off-season. So during the season, we typically have a bunch of wildflowers, some rye, and some peas. Um, So those are planted in and amongst the full-term plants. Um, And then in the off-season, we're planting daikon and mustard seed for the most part. Um, They both have really deep, aggressive roots. So they're great because we grow in live soil, like in the ground. Um, they can just keep growing and growing and growing and breaking up our soil. Um, and then we disc those right back into the soil to trap the nutrients in. Um, so those are, that, that's the majority, that, that's what we try to focus on in terms of um, the plants that we're planting in the off season in our cover crop. Oh, that's so cool. And I think like if, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think mustard is one of the popular crops that uh, wine growers use as well, correct? It is. So if you drive down 101 um, in, you know, it's typically like February-ish, um, you will see all of these kind of long stringy flowers or plants with yellow flowers on top. Those are the mustard seed plants. Um, and if they are all over one, you know, all over the side of one hundred and one, and all the vineyards, all the other ag fields. Um, they're it's really beautiful. I, I I love I love that field of yellow. It's just so well. Just going into wine country is magical, as is going going into cannabis country <laughs> for that matter. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing, though, we've been growing more auto flowers, which are ruderalis. Um, and because they are, they only grow to be a couple feet high, they're not as hardy. Um, and so they can't really compete with other crops in the ground too close to them. So our daikon has been really taken off a little bit too late in the season. <laughs> and we have unfortunately had to be, had to weed our daikon out of our auto fields. Um, so that was a little bit of a bummer in terms of our cover crop, but we've been making some great pickled daikon out of it. Oh, that's cool. That's, that's so interesting. Um, and, you know, actually, for our listeners, can you explain, like, why you would choose an autoflowering plant? Totally. Um, so you probably heard there's sativa and indica. Um, there is a third type of cannabis that is called ruderalis. And ruderalis typically has not had high THC, um, but in the last few years, uh, people have been breeding it and crossing it with sativas um, and indicas to really up the THC level. Um, What the difference is between a sativa and an indica plant and a ruderalis plant is that your typical cannabis, your sativa or indica, is light sensitive. So you plant it in the ground sometime in May or June, um, and in August, the light cycle shortens to 12 hours or less in a day. 
Um, and when that happens, that light cycle, that short light cycle triggers the plant and says, okay, it's about to be fall. I'm going to die soon. Time to propagate. You know, I must start flowering to attract the males and the pollen. Um, and so that's how your normal cannabis plant works. It's, it's reliant on the sun. How an autoflower or ruderalis works is that it's not dependent on the sun. Um, it basically starts flowering after a certain point in its vegetation, um, purely based on where it is in its growth span, not related at all to the sunlight. Um, so ruderalis plants typically only grow to be maybe two, maybe three feet tall. You're only yielding about two ounces from them. Um, and they typically cap off in THC at about 17 or 18 percent. The reason that we are growing autoflowers, in addition to our full-term flowers, is that they have a really short cycle. So you can grow them in about 70 to 80 days. And what that does for an outdoor grower like us is give us multiple harvests of outdoor flower in one season. Um, typically in one year, you can only, with full-term plants, you can only get one harvest um, because they are light-dependent and it takes that full seasonal shift um, of the actual sunlight and, and the um, environment. So autos, you can typically get more like two, some people even get three or four flips in a year. So I, I, that is one, too, that not only benefits you, but for people who want to grow at home, especially when you're starting out, that's a really great way to experiment with it, too. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. They are, you know, even though they seem like weaker, smaller plants, they're really hardy. Um, I would definitely say if you're interested in experimenting, trying out your green thumb with your first cannabis plant, a ruderalis is absolutely the way to go. It's also the difference between having a 10-gallon, you know, or maybe like a 5-gallon pot in your house versus a 100-gallon or 25-gallon <laughs> pot in your house. Growing a real full-term plant is a, a large, uh, large project physically. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I just uh, got some plants for the very first time I have them on my patio I, I thought about it in the past I actually had had friends who had um, grown on on my property but I hadn't done it myself and I just have two little girls and a boy together and everyone keeps asking me are you going to separate them and I'm like no I this is purely for juicing and to see seeds grow I just want to see the process. Oh, cool. Nice. Well, watching watching two plants breed, um, watching the seeds grow is a really fascinating process. The first time I saw a branch, and this is actually uh, my... My co-founder and husband is going to kill me for telling this story publicly. <laughs> our team was breeding. Uh, a couple of years ago, our team was breeding, and we came across, we were in the field, we came across this one branch. And we're like, oh, my God, what is going on with this branch? Could this branch be infected? Do we get something wrong with this? <laughs> we cut it off. <laughs> we brought it to the cultivation team, and they were like, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> we, we were literally breeding that plant. That was that is the beginning of that that flower creating seeds. Um, so that was a bummer. Definitely learned my lesson. But yeah, it is <laughs> fascinating to watch seeds start to produce on a flower. Oh yeah. Well, and and um, my cat loves them. He goes out and gets. It's actually the catio because it's all closed off. So we keep the door open a little bit for him, and he goes out and he chirps at them every morning. I think. I think they commune together. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's awesome. Oh, Juliet, this was so much fun. I'm so glad you came on today. Yeah, agreed. This has been a great conversation. So if people want to follow you on social media, what what's the best way to do that? You should check us out at, at Aster Farms. That's our handle on Instagram, which is where we are most active. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can always DM us there or email us at info at AsterFarms.com. And on your website, do you have the dispensaries that you're carried at? We do. We try to update it pretty regularly. Sometimes it's not totally updated, but yes, it is a it is a good list to work from. Um, and we're actually going to be launching pretty soon a platform on our site where you can actually click um, right into delivery services that have us in your neighborhood and to order. So stay oh, tuned for that. That's cool, especially right now when everybody's kind of hunkering down at home. It's nice to be able to have those options. Well, exactly. Julia, Julia Jacobson, CEO of Astor Farms. Thank you so much for being on today. And if you ever want to come back and there's something else you want to talk about, you're always welcome on Planted. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, you're so welcome. And, and send your husband my best. And thank you so much for sharing everything. I'm, I'm just I'm so excited about what you do. And this is this is an example of what we need to be seeing. Um, available. Um, everyone, thank you for tuning in today. Um, if you want to follow Planted on social media, it's Planted with Sarah on Instagram, Facebook, and also Twitter. Tune in with us next month. We're going to have another great interview. And stay safe, smoke safe, or imbibe safe, and be kind. Take care. Take care.